immortal yet paraphrased words of Albus Dumbledore. Hope can be found even in the darkest of times if one only remembers to turn on the light. Hello, 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 and welcome to episode nine of Turn on the Light. Thanks for coming back and joining me again. Um, as promised, this is two new episodes um, in a row, a week after each other, usually every two weeks. But uh, as I took a break for the early bank holiday at the beginning of May, um, I sort of shifted the schedule a bit. So now we've got another new episode today. Um, this weekend is actually another bank holiday in the UK. Yay! Um, but yeah, I decided to uh, come and release another new episode and give you some nice, easy listening, some nice positive stories for your bank holiday weekend, if you like to listen to those kind of bits and bobs that I waffle on about. Um, the start of this episode, there's only a couple of bits of good news that I wanted to share with you as I sort of waffled on quite a bit last week about various bits and bobs. Um, and this week's Species in the Spotlight is a bit of a longer story as well, is a bit more involved, um, and the interview um, is a little bit longer as well, so I don't want to keep you too long. Um, so my first piece of wonderful news um, is that over in Jersey, at Jersey Zoo, um, the zoo affiliated with the Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust, um, they have just announced that one of their eyes had a little baby back in March. Um, so yeah, a little baby eye, and uh, they, I believe they are now reopening to the public, as the rules in Jersey um, are a little bit different to, to mainland um, England. So yeah, that little critter will be there and people can go and, and see and, and visit. Um, and I eyes always have a special place in my heart as I research them there for my dissertation. Um, so yeah, I was very pleased, very happy about that. Um, second piece of good news is sort of another Madagascar um, related good piece of news as I eyes are native to Madagascar, um, just in case that was a bit confusing. Um, so a new species of frog has been discovered in Madagascar, the size of a 5p coin. Um, so that's that's super exciting as well. Always, always cool to find new species in the world, especially um, amphibian species, which are the most threatened group um, of animals in the world. So always good to see new little guys of that kind. Okay, so that sums up my good little pieces of news there. Um, and now moving on to the species in the spotlight this week. Um, I gave some clues on the Instagram. Um, so this guy is native to the steppes of Mongolia. Um, a short, stocky little fellow. Very, very cute. Um, you may have seen them in zoos in the UK. There are a few populations in, in UK zoos. Um, so without further ado, I introduce you to Shavalsky's horse. Chevalsky's horse, Latin name Equisferus Chevalsky, long considered the only true wild horse, having never been domesticated. Chevalsky's horse is native to Mongolia um, and can be found uh, along the steppes of Central Asia. Um, just a little explanation there, other horses that are thought of as wild are in fact feral. Um, so, for example, the Mustangs in America, um, they will have descended from domesticated horses at some point um, in their history. Um, and then an individual will have 
gone wild, broken away from the domestic herd um, and lived happily without human influence. And that's how those herds sort of built up over the years. Um, so they do have a domesticated ancestor at some point, um, whereas Shavalsky's horse do not. So they are the only truly wild horse. So these guys um, are, yeah, short, stocky little people. Um, they are sort of a sandy brown dung colour, often with faint stripes on their legs. Um, as I said, they're stockily built. Their legs are much shorter than um, domestic horses. And they average around 12 to 14 hands high, um, and they can weigh up to around 300 kilograms. Uh, so they live in family groups. Um, it's only sort of recently um, that we've known what those family groups look like, um, but sort of most of the time it's one male, one stallion, um, sort of two to three mares, um, and their mutual offspring. Um, family groups often join up to form a herd, um, and these sort of larger groups average sort of five to fifteen individuals. Now, the most incredible part of these guys' story is that they were in fact once declared extinct in the wild. So they just did not exist in the wild anymore at all. And as you all find out in this story, now they do exist in the wild. <laughs> um so these guys were only first officially discovered and first officially described in the 19th century by none other than Nicholas Shavalsky, funnily enough, um, who was a geographer and an explorer serving as a Russian army officer. And whilst he was returning from an expedition in Central Asia in 1878, he received a gift of a horse's skull uh, from a dignitary. Strange sort of, you know, gift, but okay. <laughs> so he took these back home, this back home with him to be examined in St. Petersburg um, at the Zoological Museum of the Russian Academy of Science. Um, and these examinations and studies concluded that it was a different species, a wild horse, um, and they named it Equus Shavalsky. Um, and this was described properly um, in a paper in 1881. And at that point... Um, these horses roamed freely on the steppe along the Mongolian-China border. Um, happy little chappies. Now, by 1900, a German animal merchant called Karl Hagenbach captured and transported wildlife all over the world. Um, and he sold to zoos, he sold to circuses, to people such as P.T. Barnum, which if you've seen The Greatest Showman, then... Oh, well, you'll have heard the name, but you definitely don't know anything about him because that movie portrays him in a very different light um, to the guy he actually was. But that's a story for another time. So this Hagamak chap, uh, he captured and transported 53 Shavalsky's horses um, that made it back to the West alive. Um, these expeditions to catch them spanned around 20 years. Um, and often hunters would kill stallions when capturing the foals, which obviously would jeopardise breeding um, in the wild. Um, now, to begin with, they didn't really do very well in captivity. Um, in 1945, uh, the only remaining individuals in captivity was around 31 in number. Um, and they were in the, bre the breeding... These Sorry. Let me start that again. <laughs> so by 1945, the only remaining population... Let me start that again. Right, basically, 1945, there was 31 of these individuals. Okay, so by 1945, there was 31 individuals remaining in captivity. 
the breeding horses of these living in Munich and Prague. Nine of those, 31 reproduced. And then fast forward to 1950, and the breeding population had fallen to just 12 individuals um, after World War II. Only 12 of, of these horses had survived the war. And of course, when you have such a low population of animals, this meant inbreeding, um, increasing the chance of genetic diseases and a reduction in fitness, um, with healthy foals being a rare occurrence, being born in these captive populations. Just a little mention back, a little heart back to Carl Hagenbach himself. I just thought it was an interesting point um, that I found out that he was not all bad. So he obviously did capture wild animals and sell them to zoos and questionable individuals. Um, but he was actually among the first to advocate for naturalistic enclosures in zoos um, and put habitat above cages. Um, so I thought that was just an interesting little point about him that, you know, shows individuals are very nuanced. It's not black and white. Not everyone is good. Not everyone is bad. And conservation um, and the world of environmental health and climate change and everything like that reflects that and uh, is very much like that also. I just thought that was interesting to pop in there. So that's that's the captive population. That's what happened um, to the descendants of the guys that this Carl Hagenbach chap captured. Um, but what about the wild population? What happened there? So obviously hunting had its impacts, um, but there were many other factors that led to these guys being coming extinct in the wild. Um, so loss of habitat made it difficult to find food and water, um, particularly in harsh desert environments where these horses existed. Um, and say the only water source for miles around was a man-made well. These animals are particularly shy and they wouldn't risk going to that well for water. Um, so that was a massive problem for them. Um, yeah, loss of water sources to domestic animals as well, um, slowly led to their extinction. Um, also, particularly harsh winters of the mid-1900s didn't help. Um, and talking about World War II again as well, what didn't help either um, was a group of German soldiers who slaughtered a herd living in Askania Nova region of Ukraine during the World War II occupation. Very, very naughty. Not okay at all. What also happened with Shavalsky's horse was hybridisation with domestic horses, um, leading to, obviously, individuals that were not of the Shavalsky's horse species. So it is thought that Shavalsky's horses were already quite rare in the wild by the first half of the 20th century. Um, so a combination of all of those factors I just spoke of acting on a small population had devastating effects. And before any conservation efforts and before any reintroduction efforts that I'll go on to talk about, um, before that, the last Shavalsky's horse was seen in the wild in 1969. So really not too long ago um, that this species was driven completely to extinction in the wild. So as I touched on earlier, there were obviously still these captive populations. Now, until the 1970s, they tended to remain in the same zoos, increasing those inbreeding levels, um, which are, of course, very dangerous to a population's genetic diversity, very dangerous to a population's uh, disease resistance levels, the health and fitness of their offspring. So genetic diversity was lost and there was clear evidence of inbreeding depression. So in 1979, a species survival plan was set up in the U.S., followed in 1986 by a European breeding programme. Now, this led to a greater exchange between zoos to reduce inbreeding and increase that genetic diversity. 
and by the 1990s, there was a global population of nearly 1,500 Shevalsky's horses in captivity. And with those large numbers, larger numbers, plans were starting to be made for their reintroduction to their native lands of Mongolia. Now, the 1990s were a good time for this to happen. Everything sort of fell into place at the right time, um, as Mongolia had transitioned to a democracy from socialism. And this shift in politics meant that projects that perhaps wouldn't have been able to happen previously now could take place. So, there were three reintroduction sites originally in Mongolia. And now I do apologise if I say these, these names wrong. I'm trying my best. I did look up pronunciation guides, but, you know, I can still make mistakes. Um, so there's Tarkintal in the Gobi Strictly Protected Area Section B, which is an international biosphere reserve situated in the southwestern area of Mongolia. And this is actually where Shevalsky's horses were last seen in the wild. And then there was Hastai National Park, a smaller protected area just to the north of the centre of Mongolia, um, just, just outside of the capital of Ulaanbaatar. So horses were brought to these two sites, firstly in 1992. Between 1992 and 2000, 84 horses were brought to Hastai. And since 1997, five harems have been released to the Gobi protected area. Now, the third site, uh, in 2004, 12 horses were brought to this third site of Komantal, which is a buffer zone of Kar Usnar National Park. So those three sites were Tarkintal, Hustai National Park, and Komantal buffer zone. <clears throat> so some 300 horses have since been reintroduced to their native Mongolia. And there are reintroduced herds also in Hungary and Russia, Kazakhstan and China. Um, in Russia, a large herd is once again found in the Askania Nova Reserve. Um, now, if you recall, that's where those naughty German soldiers slaughtered a herd previously. So it's nice to see um, them back there in that area. And there is even a herd successfully reproducing on its own in the Chernobyl Exclusion Zone. Um, which has kind of become a bit of a haven for wildlife um, since people haven't been there. Um, and we're sort of seeing that a little bit all over the world, aren't we, with, uh, with lockdown measures and wildlife creeping back in. Very interesting stuff. Now, just about a decade ago, the IUCN reclassified Shavalsky's horse from extinct in the wild to endangered. What a remarkable change in status. Extinct in the wild, to endangered. Madness. And the largest herd exists in Hustai National Park, which, as I said, is a mere 60 miles outside of Mongolia's capital of Ulaanbaatar. Now, of course, it is worth mentioning that the Shavalsky horse was never studied properly in the wild before extinction. So now this creates an opportunity um, to study the social structures, their behaviour, etc., for example, in Hungary, in Hortobagay National Park, they are continuously monitored by scientists working to understand their natural behaviours. Um, obviously, these studies will also contribute to the husbandry and management um, of captive populations worldwide. It's also definitely worth mentioning that this was indeed a global conservation effort. Now, I usually will talk of the specific groups involved in... Um, 
you know, in the captive breeding um, or in the reintroduction process. This time, um, I haven't within the sort of main body of things, just because there were so many people and organisations involved. Um, but I'll just I'll just go through a few here. So, for example, the Zoological Society of London, uh, the Christian Dis- Oswald Foundation in Germany, um, of course, the Mongolian government, International Taki Group, the Dutch Foundation Reserves for, for Chevalsky's Horse, Mongolian Association for the Conservation of Nature and the Environment, many zoological institutions, of course, holding the captive populations um, in places ranging from London, Amsterdam, Hamburg, etc., including Prague Zoo, who continue to maintain the stud book for the species, which is a record of the parentage of every individual Chevalsky's horse on the planet, which, of course, is important um, when looking at preventing inbreeding and increasing that genetic diversity um, and not letting that inbreeding depression come back. Of course, the success of this little horse is not least thanks to the attitude of the local Mongolian people. There's been great support for the return of this horse because it is their horse. Mongolia is not Mongolia without horses. Um, And so their attitude is fantastic in in helping these reintroductions be successful. Um, Yeah, so it's helping keeping hunting low um, and competition with livestock, helping that not to be an issue as well. So, numbers today. The global population of Chevalsky's horse is around 2,000. And the trend reported by the IUCN for these guys is increasing. How fabulous is that? Now, as I just said, Mongolia is not Mongolia without horses. So let's keep it that way. And the population of these guys is increasing without human interference. So... We helped in the captive breeding and we helped with the reintroduction efforts, but now their population is increasing without us stepping in and getting involved. And that is truly, truly a conservation success story. Okay, so now it's time for fun facts of the Shavalsky's horse. The Mongolians call this horse Taki, and that means spirit or worthy of worship. Taki, I like that. Also, you do not ride the Taki. No, no, not for riding. Fun fact number two. They produce viable hybrid offspring. This is actually quite a big deal and really fascinating. So for a typical example, a horse with 64 chromosome pairs mates with a donkey with 62. Most people are aware that they will produce a mule, which is a sterile offspring, a hybrid of the horse and the donkey which cannot have young of its own however if you pair a Chevalsky's horse with a domestic horse and they breed Chevalsky's horse having 66 chromosome pairs and the domestic horse as said there 64 they produce offspring with 65 chromosome pairs which are surprisingly usually viable to produce their own offspring fun fact number three Herds observed at reintroduction sites have been seen to display affectionate behaviour towards one another. Isn't that lovely? And fun fact number four. Genghis Khan reportedly spotted the horses during his conquests. And these short, stocky, fast and strong little babes are said to have not really changed very much since that time. 
Now, now it's time for me to introduce today's special guest. So please join me in welcoming Adam Cook. He is a recent graduate of a Bachelor of Science with Honours in International Wildlife Biology, which he undertook in Wales. He has spent significant time in Africa and Mexico, building and honing his animal handling, bird mist netting, camera trapping, bird survey and underwater transect skills, to name but a few. Let us delve into the mind of this young conservationist. Hi. Can you hear me well? I can, I can. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Um, I usually do a little intro um, for my guests, which I um, will have pre-recorded um, before sort of jumping into this recording. Um, just saying you're Adam Cook. Welcome to the podcast. Um, and you're a recent graduate of Bachelor of Science with Honours in International Wildlife Biology. Um, yeah, so I, I just wanted to sort of start um, with your with your origin story, if you like. Um, just a quick side note for listeners. Um, that you wrote a blog article for the organisation Lonely Conservationist, um, which if people have listened to previous podcast episodes, you may have heard about the organisation and you may have heard Jesse Panazzolo, the leader of that organisation, talking about it. Um, it's essentially a supportive community of like-minded people bringing conservationists from around the world together and making them less lonely. Um, and in your blog, I just I really loved your story of like your ingrained passion for animals from a young age. So I was wondering if you could share that with the wider group. Um, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, whenever I talk about me being when I was younger um, and sort of my love for animals, I mean, I've always loved animals as long as I can remember. Um, I mean, most people are into cars, most people are into different things, but always been animals for me. Um, and the one story that I always tell everyone is the one that mum used to tell me the most when I was younger was when I was about I think it's about three years old so I was only a, a wee kid a little tight um and I was at uh, Marwell Zoo and we were sort of walking around and me being me I was running between every other exhibit seeing all the animals being fascinated by what they were doing and just wanting to sort of get in there and run around with them these <laughs> isn't the, the best of things um but at that young age you, you sort of you sort of love that sort of uh, a side of things um but there was a lady um standing next to one of the, the exhibits and she was going to her kids she was going oh guys look at the kangaroos in there how cool are they and apparently i went up and tugged her sort of arm and sort of like excuse me they're not kangaroos they're wallabies <laughs> and then sort of ran off my little I love <laughs> um i i mean and even with mum, I used to correct her. I mean, we were walking around another, the same sort of area, the same sort of time, and uh, there were some 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 emus um, in one of the exhibits. It, 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 actually, with the wallabies, it turned out to be. Um, and again, she was like, "Oh, Adam, look at those ostriches!" And I <laughs> turning around, I was like, "No, no, they're emus." So yeah, always, always from a young age, I just I just found fascination. I mean, I used to watch David Attenborough and Steve and constantly on repeat. Um, whenever we go on long car journeys, mum would stick the little DVD player on in the back of the car for us, and <laughs> be all I listen to David Attenborough. So uh, yeah, it's yeah, a good good thing for parents hours. to be able to sort of <laughs> sling in the signal towards their kids. <laughs> oh yeah. So that was sort of when you were toddler toddler years. Um, so what else sort of in your young life and, and your school years yeah. did you sort of do or get involved yourself in to keep that passion burning that eventually led you to, to your degree? I think it was a mixture of sort of watching it on TV, 
going on sort of school trips to, to different sort of zoos and stuff like that. I mean, I love Longleat as well. Longleat is an amazing place to go because as a young kid, never being on safari before, to go to somewhere like Longleat and being able to sort of sit in your car and basically immerse yourself yeah. in animals is just amazing. Um, so, so, so definitely those sort of opportunities I had definitely helped sort of, of strengthen it. Um, because again, at that sort of age, you're constantly wanting to improve your knowledge. Well, for me, for animal-wise, I was constantly wanting to improve my knowledge, but just see everything. I didn't have to sit there and sort of be told, oh, this is this, this is that. I just wanted to sit there and, and watch and admire and, and, and mm-hmm. just study my own little world, as it were. Like my parents used to get really annoyed because I'd happily just sit somewhere or watch a TV just for hours on end. Just like I, I'd go to a, a zoo and I'd sit at the enclosure for literally 20, 30 minutes. My parents were like, oh, come on, I don't, <laughs> you've seen it now. I'm like, no, 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 no not yet. Not yet. In a minute, in a minute. And I constantly, and, and it, it, everything, big, small, whether people would class them as, as cute or ugly, I would just sit there and yeah. just watch. And I just loved it. And I still do to this day. I went to my, my, 20, my 20th birthday. I went out, literally on the day. My parents were like, what do you want to do? I was like, no, I'll do. I love that. It's like, it's like you, sort of, I don't know, when people sort of try and gather so much knowledge about something and, and sort of try to own it in a way almost like that your approach of that is totally different like or you obviously have a massive respect for these animals and you just want to like absorb what they're about um mm. which and also like yeah sorry yeah i'm gonna say um, mm. it's, it's the same as when i've been out in the field i mean I, i've been on a lot of safaris and stuff and for me every sighting is a good sighting whether it's yeah. a parlor or whether it's a leopard I'm more than happy just to sit there and take my time. There's no rush. There's, there's no need to, to run from one animal to a next and just and, and, and tick off, for me personally, and just tick off every single animal I see. I'm more than happy just to take my time. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I was just saying it's a good <laughs> skill to have to be able to sit there um, um, and take your time because obviously um, studies and, and watching animals is not something that that happens on anyone's schedule um, apart from the animals. So it's good to be able to practice that. <laughs> Especially when you're, you're, you're doing research. Um, from my experience anyway, I mean, I, I've only been out in the field for, for a little bit compared to most people, but from my experience, you've got to have that patience. Mm-hmm. You've got to be able to sit there and enjoy it because otherwise if you try and rush the wildlife, exactly. you're not going to get good results. You've got to take your time, be patient, be prepared to sort of, endure long um, moment, times in the field of, of, of maybe just watching an animal groom itself for, for two hours on end. Um, but if that's what it takes to, uh, if that's what it takes to get the findings out and that's to, 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 to fully understand. Exactly. Yeah. Animal, I, I remember from my, from my thesis research, just sort of sitting in the dark. Um, it was on IRs and their behavior um, sitting in the dark, watching them for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> trying to like try and keep awake <laughs> um oh, but yeah it's all worth it so, I was say, yeah your yeah. vision must be amazing after that, yeah maybe. yeah well maybe maybe i should do a study on that like the before and after the study on the eye eyes of how my eyesight has changed that'd be quite interesting yeah <laughs> Yeah, so that's just sort of talking about uh, being out there and, and you talking about being on safari sort of le- leads me on to my, my next question of um, whilst you were at university, you got the chance to visit South Africa. Um, and yeah, I just wondered if you could tell us a bit about like what 
that experience was like for you, what you got to see, what you got to do, how long you sat there for waiting for the animals to, to come by. Um, yeah, um, well, I was, I've been very lucky. So I've, as part of my degree, I've spent three trips out to Africa, totaling up to about 15, 16 weeks. Um, I've, I've seen all sorts of things. I mean, I, I've seen stuff from, from wild dogs. I've seen impala, zebra, all sorts of stuff, elephants, leopards, uh, big game sort of tracking. Um, so we learned about how to, to do a bit of tracking, how to do plant ID, um, different sort of behavior studies. Because it's when you're in first year, you've got to learn those like basic skills and key skills, especially to be out in the bush. Like tracking is so important if you want to find your, mm-hmm. your, your study um, target, as it were. And your subject so and what, what techniques did you learn or, or practice for tracking what sort of things um, so we did stuff like just sort of driving along seeing a few tracks getting out of the game viewer and just having a look and sort of um understanding what animals sort of had been there looking at um uh scats um looking at everything from like tiny little movements in the grass like where so as in like if an animal's been making a scraping for a uh, territory, um, a sort of uh, a midden is what they call it. It's like a territorial marking. Um, lots of animals, sort of like uh, wildebeest or rhinos or all sorts of animals, these territorial markings called middens. Um, and basically, they'll they'll either rub their feet on there or they'll uh, um, they'll, they'll, they'll leave a sort of a, a scent marking, as it were, um, to let other animals know. So we learned to ID which animals have been there. Um, whether it was fresh or not. Um, yeah, so, so, so little things like that when it came to tracking. Um, there's a lot more to go into, and I'm, I'm, I'm nowhere near yeah. it. But, um, but I found it quite interesting, that's for sure. Um, with a lot of bird ID stuff. So, yeah, it was, it was good fun on my first sort of trip. Um, my second trip, I went out there, I was doing my dissertation research, um, which, again, was, was quite interesting. Um, so that was, again, doing a lot of tracking. So my research was all to do with sort of how human hunting affects behaviour of animals. Um, so yeah, I yeah, I would to... ask you about that because it was um, sort of specifically in five key ungulates, wasn't it? Um, yeah, ones that so not hunted. Yeah, so I looked at um, well, let's see, you say five key ungulates. Um, so some which were hunted uh, on 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 a reserve, some which weren't. Um, it's it was quite an interesting subject because I was looking at sort of behaviour, so movement in and out of areas, whether or not animals became more skittish, because especially if people hunt off vehicles, um, a lot of places try and, like, don't do that because it's not very, it's not classed as ethical hunting. Um, mm-hmm. So I was looking at sort of behaviour and stuff like that. But again, we looked at a lot of tracks again there. So you, you put a quadrat on the ground and you'd, you'd study the contracts and look at sort of quadrats and sort of look at um, movement in and out of the area. So that was quite interesting. And then sort of my, my final time going out there, um, uh, for, for those lot of trips with the university was uh, helping other people out with their sort of research and helping run the, uh, the field trips that went out there with the university for the first years. Um, so I had quite a, a varied experience from being the sort of the student to sort of becoming the teacher, as it were. Um, I went through my own little Jedi training, as it were, out there. Um, but it was, yeah, it was, it was good fun. And I loved every minute of it. I mean, I've had some amazing experiences, um, both on foot, in vehicle, um, and, and as I said before, every experience for me is a good experience, whether it's, it's an Impala or it's a leopard. It's just a- yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, did, um, obviously every experience is, is special, but were there any sort of particular 
standout ones that that really stick in your mind you know like the first time that you managed to positively like id a, a, a track mark or a hoof mark or something like that like something that just was like your eureka moment almost um well i've I, I probably have a, a few eureka moments but probably one <laughs> yeah. of my strongest and best memories was actually when i went walking with lions wow um, so basically myself um and one of the guys we were taking uh, one of the game viewers out with a group of students on and we were, we were driving through the bush and we get a radio call come in saying that um they uh one of the groups had seen uh some lions on a kill um but it was right down in the riverine so they couldn't really see it um so they wanted to know if, if, if someone was available to go have a look. So we, we drove across um, and we, we found the other guys and I said, oh, they're, they're down in the river. It's quite thick bush, but uh, it's probably quite easy to get to. Um, we don't know who's down there. We know roughly there's, there's, there's two females and either cubs or, or juvenile males. But we're not too sure because it depends on which females are there. Um, do you guys know who it is? Um, so I got the telemetry system out um, and I, I scanned around and I, I worked out which females were there. But I, I couldn't remember at the time which one had the young cubs or which one had uh, juvenile males. Um, so we decided we'll get out the vehicle um, and we'll go scout out the area just to see if it was safe enough to bring the other students down to get them on foot with lions. Because again, it's an amazing experience if you keep your distance, you keep your respect. But uh, being on mm -hmm. foot with lions is a whole, whole new ball game. So so much fun um but basically me and the guy got out and we were walking down and when you've got a telemetry system it's on a scale of one to ten one being they're quite far away but they're within the vicinity and ten being you're literally standing on top of them <laughs> um, when we got out the vehicle they were on about an eight pushing a nine so they were really close they're probably about 20 30 meters away um so we knew they were close so the, the guide and i got out so we we, we we stood there, we, we had a game plan of, okay, so we're going to walk this way, you're going to stand behind me, I've got the rifle, um, we'll walk in, we'll keep an eye out, we'll keep our distance, we'll stay up, win, this, that and the other. Um, we had our plan perfectly nailed and we, we started walking and I had the telemetry system right next to my ear and I was twisting the dial and we're getting closer and closer to where we thought the, uh, the, the females were and suddenly the dial stopped twisting. And I looked mm -hmm. down at it and I was like, Craig, we're at 10 currently. And we had no idea where these lines were. I mean, they literally were next to us within oh my God. meters of us. We'd literally walked in from the... So we stopped. We stood still. That's given me a stop. All right. Tell me about it. Um, we stopped. <laughs> we stood still. We had a look around. And then sort of five meters in front of us, we saw like um, a bit of the carcass of, of the Niala that they had killed. And we sort of sat there looking around. And we're like, okay, these guys are close. Like, they're, they're right here with us. Um. And we slowly start to move back. And as we do, we see a little bit of movement about 10, 15 metres in front of us. And we're like, oh, OK, that's one of the cubs. OK, I don't know. Wait, no, that's one of the juvenile males. So these guys haven't been collared because they're too young to be collared. Because if they grow up, when they grow up, they have to get their collar changed, etc. Et mm -hmm. So these, there's two of them. So we know there's one there. So where's the second one? Mm -hmm. Two metres to my left, the second one poked his head off and went, Ugh. Oh, that was it. That that was an underwear changing moment, and him and I slowly walked out of the bush, went back to the car, I went back to the, the vehicle, and the guy said they've never seen two grown men hug as hard as we did because we went on like high fives, cheering, shouting, like oh we we were we were over the moon. That was that was a, a proper experience. I mean to get right within those lions to to have them sort of 
chilled out with us. I mean, it was completely by accident that we walked in on them. We knew they were in the area, but we weren't expecting them to be that high up the, the bank as we were. Um, but yeah. oh, it, was, it was an amazing experience. And, and it's, you, you feel so much respect for these animals, especially when you're put with them and you're, you're right next to them. It's, it, it really is a, a truly magical experience. Um, that is something that has given that has literally given me goosebumps that is one of those once in a lifetime kind of experiences that you can't you know you couldn't recreate for love nor money like that's wow that's so lucky you got that chance (laughs) oh yeah no and and as I say like I mean these these are young young boys I mean they they could have taken us if they wanted to I mean they were they were that close they could have taken us at any moment um it's always dangerous walking in but I mean we we were adamant we weren't actually that close to to where we thought where we were told the kill was um and yeah no it, it was it was an amazing experience and to get that close to those beautiful boys i mean yeah it's, it's amazing um never wow. had an experience just like that um i've had lots of different ones other ones other animals on foot but never like that again wow wow thank you so much for sharing that with us that is quite the story <laughs> yeah. um that kind of leads me nicely on to talking about another of africa's um carnivores um i've seen that you've had some work and some some uh, experiences with hyenas um which i wanted to talk about because i love hyenas and i feel that they're just so misunderstood and there's a lot of common misconceptions about them like that they're all mean that they're scavengers all the time that they're laughing all the time and you know they're the bad guys in in the lion king so that was bad press from the off <laughs> um but those things just aren't true are they like they are wonderful wonderful animals oh yeah i mean so, so we, I was out there with a, a, a friend um, helping her with her dissertation research, which was looking at uh, hyena vocalisation um, and how whether or not there's different idiolects within groups. Hello? Hello? Okay, you answer that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so we're looking <laughs> at different, uh, different idiolects between groups. And um, she... We, we would go out at night and we would we'd put bait out and, and we'd, we'd do different drags. We'd try and find them. And, ah, oh, again, it's, it's, they're, they're such quiet animals. Like they're, they're, <laughs> they're so stunning to watch in, in the wild. I mean, we, so we'd be out at night and we'd hear them sort of um, whooping in the background. And, and you only really hear the actual laugh during a feeding frenzy. Um, and that's, that's when they're feeding. And it's the same with lions. They make sort of um, vocalizations as well when they eat. Hyenas do the same. Um, so you only hear that actual iconic cackle um, when, when, when they're eating. Um, but you'd hear contact calls and all sorts of stuff, but we couldn't see them. We couldn't hear them running around. But every so often you'd hear that little sort of pitter-patter of feet just behind you. They'd spin around and they've disappeared off. And they're actually really quite shy creatures. Um, you'd think they're really oh, confident okay. and, and all up in you. But actually, when we were in the vehicle, I mean, we'd sit there in, in complete silence um, putting out calls, trying to um, attract them into the area to try and ID them. Um, and they really were quite, I mean, you'd see, you'd, you'd always see the eyes and you'd always see the eyes with the spotlights, but they were, they were always sort of hiding away. And every so often they'd appear out of the distance and sort of slowly make their way forward. But I thought it was fascinating. I mean, I used to love hearing them at night because I think because we were creating so much activity of, of uh, an, a rival clan, as it were, um, within their territories, mm. we'd hear them at night, sort of contact calling each other quite often, and it was it was, it was actually quite relaxing to hear. You, it's, it's 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 not the same as a lion's roar. A lion's roar is very different. It's very powerful and really shakes you. But 
They're cool. Mm, I don't know, I don't yeah. know the best way to explain it, but I thought they're really cute, to be honest, especially some of the, the, the cubs. They're adorable little things. Um, I, I think they're lovely, yeah. Lovely and, creatures. And they all have such different personalities again as well. I mean, we would see them at night and we, we sort of, we named a few of them because they were quite recognisable because we called one Limpy because obviously <laughs> Um And we just thought it was just within ourselves. I mean, um, we, we gave them little names, but each one had a different personality. Some were more boisterous than the others. Some were a lot more shy and relaxed. Others that you thought would be shy and relaxed because of the way they moved actually were the most confident and, and would come out and, and go at the base and stuff like that. So. No, I, I really like them. I, I think they do have a bad rep. I get why they have a bad rep. I mean, I've, I've seen some all sorts of videos of, of the way they sort of deal with the carcass and stuff like that. I get it. But they're such mm -hmm. key and important species, um, especially yeah. the hyenas, the way that they, they, they do clear up um, the, the, the bush. I mean, it's the same with vultures. They're both such important species to keep disease down, to get rid of um, mm -hmm. uh, and, any rubbish, as it were. Um, because they are, they are sort of the binmen of the bush. Without them, the, yeah. sort of, the plains would just be scattered um, with all sorts of stuff. Um, yeah, they help. Yeah, no, they, they're really important. I do think they've got a really a, a bad press. Don't get me wrong. I love the Ugly Five like, um, talk about them. And I, I think it's quite cute that they have that sort of little title because you, you, sort of, you sort of have that extra bit of connection like, oh, cool, I've seen one of the Ugly Five. How cute is that? Um, <laughs> They, they, they do have an adorable little face that you do just want to give a little smush and a cuddle, as it were. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it, that's for sure. Um, no, probably not. No. <laughs> um, but no, they, they definitely have a, a lot worse press than they, than they are deserving of. I personally think. Anyway. Yeah. So I think, yeah, if anything, the takeaway message from, from this episode of the podcast is to just everyone love hyenas a little bit more. Some, <laughs> some positive vibes for those guys. I think it's just love, love everything a little bit more animal-based. I mean, there's lots of people have their favourites. I mean, I, 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 I can't really justify picking a favourite sometimes. I mean, I've got my favourite, there's no doubt about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, there's, there's everything. I mean, I've, I've not always been that interested in, in sort of insects and stuff like that. But actually, sometimes I'll sit there and I go, oh, wow, that's fascinating. Never thought about it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, definitely. I absolutely am so terrified of spiders, but from the work I've done out in the field and there was like entomologists and, and people who there who were really, really into bugs and creepy crawlies and stuff. And so from, from a distance, I'd, I'd get really interested and want to hear more about it. Yeah. Um, because yeah, they have, they I've, obviously everything has their own place in the ecosystem, um, yeah. which is just as important as any other. Same with me, same with me. Like I love watching spiders. I'm more than happy to have 20, 30 spiders sitting in my room, but do not touch me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. So that's a lot about your um, your terrestrial experiences. Um, so I wanted to move on and ask you about um, your marine experiences as well, mm -hmm. which I know you've had your fair share of. Um, yeah. And I understand from your experiences, you learned more about um, our underwater world, but you also learn about um, the country that you did it in. So in Mexico, like you, you learn about um, massive contrasts in how different countries and areas live and about the amazing history of the area as well as learning about the underwater world um which was really interesting to me as well because it's sort of taking like showing how much you can learn through conservation um about mm -hmm. all different kind of things as well um mm -hmm. yeah so i was wondering if you could sort of tell us a bit about mexico and, and all or what you 
or what um, you learned that experience? So, so Mexico was my second trip with university. So with the university, I went to South Africa in my first year. Then I went to Mexico, then South Africa in my second year. And in my third year, I went to South Africa again. Um, Mexico <laughs> was an awesome trip. It, it actually probably trumped South Africa just how much fun I had out there. Um, but it was, uh, I think it was about three weeks long. And we spent about a week and a bit uh, in the uh, Calakmul jungle. Um, uh, and then we spent the other week and a bit uh, in Atamal uh, on the coast of Mexico, scuba diving. Um, both completely different, both completely amazing. And I had so much fun in both of them. Um, in the sort of the jungle area, we did quite a lot of stuff looking at uh, like biodiversity. Um, so looking at the, the trees, so the flora and the fauna, um, looking at the relationships, um, looking at, we did, we did different bird surveys. So we did like mist netting and stuff like that. So we caught some amazing, beautiful birds that we then took readings off, tagged and then released them. Um, what else did we do? Oh, just some awesome behavior with uh, spider monkeys. That was awesome. That was really cool. Sort of watching them in the trees and how they sort of behave and interact with each other was Again, fascinating. Um, but again, as you say, we did learn a bit about the culture of sort of the area. Um, we went to some of the, uh, the ancient temples. Um, we learned about how the sort of the original sort of um, uh, uh, people um, used, like they cultivated the land in such a way that you could literally map out where all the plants were, all the trees were planted, all the, the crops were being planted. And that's what they're currently doing. Um, so I, I sort of with Operation Wallacea, um, a great, uh, another good company. Um, mm -hmm. And we were sort of mapping out the sort of, uh, we're doing a, a phenology trial, I think they called it. Um, so looking at how like the trees were, 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 were sort of placed around the areas it were, so they could create a virtual map um, of, 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 of how the, their ancestors really live. Um, and how- it really, really was. And, and you'd have certain trees that could dig deep down into water, into the water table and you'd have then smaller trees around it and different fruiting trees and how um, each fruiting tree was sort of different times of the year and all, all the monkeys and, the, and, and the, um, the locals knew exactly when everything was. It was just fascinating knowing how in touch they were to the land. And I, I think, I think as, as sort of Brits, we've, we've, a lot of us have lost touch with that really. And it's just, it's just amazing how their knowledge is still used today and there's still people that are experts in, in the types of trees and, 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 and how to use the, the, the flora, as it were, for, for medicine, for food, what's the right thing to use, what's the wrong thing to use. It, it just was fascinating. It really, really was. Yeah, I, I, really interesting point you make there about Brits perhaps having lost touch with our own country a bit. And I definitely 100% agree with that. And I feel like maybe with... Um, conservationists and sort of scientists in general like and I'm definitely guilty of it too like you want to go abroad and you want to like spread your wings and like explore everything and and I find myself like maybe I neglected my own country a little bit um yeah so I think it's yeah it's important for us to to take stock of of what's around us and I think that's one of the positives coming out of this sort of lockdown situation um I'm definitely taking much more notice of and appreciating much more what we have immediately on our doorstep for sure Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I spent more time photographing sort of British wildlife when I get the opportunity to. I mean, I spent more time photographing butterflies because that's what I've got around here. 
Um, yeah. And it's, it's sort of, it's nice to get back to, to your local nature, as you say. I mean, you can, you can find everything in your, in your, in your front doorstep. I mean, I'm uh, starting up uh, with a, a group of people and we're, we're doing a, a, a challenge. Um, it's, it's a city nature challenge. Um, and we're getting, trying to encourage people to get out into their garden um, to do all these little exercises and to, to, to learn how to, to find all the, the good bits and pieces, whether it's the creepy crawlies all the way up to sort of the bigger mammals or birds and just to enjoy everything and, and, and take five minutes just to sit and, and take it all in, really. Um, and yeah, and, yeah and, and, and sort of learn about what's, what's on your own doorstep and what's right in front of you, whether you're in a city or the country. Everywhere's different and everywhere's got a variety and, and, and great biodiversity. You just got to find it. Exactly. Now, I won't, I think the dates for the challenger is at 24th of April to the 26th. Yes. Um, but this podcast episode will come out after that, sadly. Um, yes. But I will be sharing it on, on social media and stuff. But um, what people can do still um, is download the iNaturalist app, isn't it? That's what yeah. you'll be using to sort of record um, all what you've seen um and heard and, and all of that and you don't and it's a really easy app to use like nobody needs to be um an expert or anything it's literally just recording what you see um yeah, exactly. and, you know, yeah and people can continue to use it after the challenge it's it's sort of a, I mean, a lovely big piece of citizen science that you can just exactly just, and actually we're going on after the challenge so once the challenge is finished we're still going to be sort of uh, myself and the group of about i want to say 20 other sort of conservationists um We'll be sort of going on through May, June, July, doing little bit, little projects, different takeovers, trying to encourage and, and, and create engagement of people to find stuff on your local doorstep, whether it's on your little hour walk and exercise, or even if it's in your own front garden or on your front doorstep, literally on your front doorstep, you can find all sorts of stuff there. If you lift up your map, I bet you'll find probably some wood lives and stuff like that. So, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it'll be carried on and we're, we're going to try our best to to keep everyone positive and happy because the best thing to do at the moment is just keep smiling and keep keep going because there's there's, there's there's nothing you can do to change it so always always keep smiling and happy about it and just i say nature is yeah, a great absolutely. way well nature is a great way to do that for me for me personally if, if ever i'm ever feeling down or anything like that i just go sit out in the garden take five minutes out there and just sit close my eyes and just listen to what's going on around me what birds can I hear? What insects can I hear? Can I even hear cars in the background? Is my dog barking at me to throw a ball for her? What can <laughs> I hear going on? And it's, it just takes five minutes out of your day just to, just to connect a little bit. Whether or not you do it barefoot or shoes on or, or, or however you want to do it, whether you do it with your morning cup of tea or your beer in the evening, however you want to do it, just take five minutes out just to connect a little bit more. Definitely. Really wise words there because I think people forget again that we are we are nature aren't we we are part of nature so to to feel that again and reconnect to that is is definitely important good for the good for the soul exactly exactly <laughs> so um where do you you've had these sort of terrestrial and marine experiences sort of across different countries and obviously you've got your degree now um what do you see is next for you where would you sort of see your journey going marine terrestrial something else um yeah what what is what is your sort of ideas for the future see it's it is a real tough one um because yeah. i do love everything um like i've i've always been the person that i'll get my hands dirty in one area and i'll go that's it that's what i want to do 
and then something else will come along and I'll give it a go and I'll go, oh, you know what? Actually, that's where I want to be. That's what I want to do. And I, mean, I found that both with, with, with the marine and the terrestrial stuff. I, mean, I loved being underwater. I loved it. Um, and, and, and when I had to fly back to the UK and, and, and not be in the sort of the Mexico um, sea anymore, I was, yeah, I was a bit upset. But actually, I love I loved being under there. And it's the same with being on the land. I love being in South Africa. And every time I go back to Africa, I go, oh, I want to be here. Um, <laughs> so I'm not too sure, really. But what I can say is hopefully all sort of coronavirus dependent, I'm moving to South Africa in August. Um, I've, I've, I've got a, a position at the Kalahari Meerkat Project. Um, so I'll be there for the next year um, doing research with meerkats and collecting data and hopefully trying to set up my own sort of podcast vlog stuff about life out there really um but who knows uh, um once i've done that who knows where i'll go next will i go back to the sea will i go do some guiding it's a it's a, it's a big wide world and, and it's, it's wild. yeah whilst i know i know it sounds so sort of cliche in the sense that oh you're young let's go travel let's let's explore the world but why not Let's enjoy it whilst I can. Let's have a bit of try a bit of everything, and then see where I want to specialise. There's no rush. I'm I'm enjoying what I'm doing at the moment. I love every minute of minute of it. I love finding out about new things. I mean, my my wildlife book collection, my ID collection, is so varied from British wildlife to Mexican wildlife to South African wildlife to, to Indian wildlife. I've got all sorts of stuff, um, and I enjoy every bit of it. Um, so, yeah, it'll be an interesting way to see where I go and what I do but I think it's most likely going to be terrestrial and probably in South Africa mm-hmm. well congratulations um on the position mm-hmm. I hope everything goes according to plan my fingers so are yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no I think that's really refreshing as well because as, as a young conservationist and sort of someone who's just coming out of uni and, and now sort of entering the wider world I feel like a lot of the time people feel that pressure to sort of fast press the fast forward button and be like right okay I need to do this and I need this job and I need to have this career and then I need to get this thing under me and I need to have like you know have this income and then I need to get the house and then I need to progress and then maybe a PhD and all these things and it can become just too much and and too much pressure so as you say there's there's time there's so much time there is absolutely no rush just take it all in and I mean I think it's I think it's one of those things that people stress themselves out unnecessarily over personally that's why I think Mm -hmm. Because I think it's all it's all well and good having a plan, and it's an, it's good to have an have a goal in mind. But at the same time, there's no point walking down a tunnel. To, I mean, okay, my, my favorite analogy of it was was a picture that I saw, which was a a a, 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 a bowl of money at the end of the this tunnel, and the person was walking down it, and he just carried on going straight. There was lots of little turnings off. But what he didn't realise was each of those turnings had a car outside of it that he could have got in and got to that goal quicker. So <laughs> I think it's always good to at least poke your head around every single door and have a look at the options and the choices you get because it may not be the right one. You may have to backtrack on yourself. But also it may be the right thing to do that actually you decide it's better. I mean, I've got friends who, who've, who've sat down and gone, oh, I think I failed in life because I haven't gone into to conservation after my degree, this and the other. I've gone in and, and I'm working in a... Uh, a, a bank um and i go well do you enjoy it oh yeah no love it so, so what are you complaining about oh but i haven't done this and you can come back to it later there's there's no rush in life um mm-hmm. whilst you can enjoy things do enjoy things i mean i've i've spent the last year just working in a bar i haven't really done much wildlife stuff bar what i do on my instagram um 
because I, I've, I've enjoyed working in the bath pub. I've enjoyed doing the way I've done. I've enjoyed saving up money to, to go on trips later on. I haven't rushed it. I haven't gone out looking for things and I haven't felt like I've, I've, I've failed just because I haven't gone straight into a career. I've enjoyed it. It's, it's, it's made my life more fun and, and I've met loads of amazing people on the way. For all we know, if I'd gone straight out into the field, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. That's um, so true. Yeah. And I, I think that I think that no one should regret what they choose and everyone should just sort of live in the moment. Don't worry about the past. That's happened. That's been and gone. Don't worry about the future mm-hmm. because you can change it where you want it to. Just enjoy it. I think that's, yeah. Very wise words indeed. That, I like that. Just look around every door. I really like that phrase. I'm gonna I'm gonna use that in the future. <laughs> well, I, I think more people need to because there's a lot of people that I know that literally have a three step goal to success sort of thing, and it's all well and good and it works for some people. Don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to knock it, but I think that if you follow that exactly, you. I mean, I've had friends turn around to me like, oh, like I've had well, rugby friends, okay, and they've got oh, I've had offers from here, here, and here. Okay, why don't you take them? Oh, well, I'm enjoying the club I'm playing for at the moment. But you could be playing rugby in New Zealand for, for, for great teams, learning new skills. Oh, yeah. but And it's like, well, if you don't take the opportunity, you'll never know what it turns out to be in the first place. It could be the mm-hmm. best decision you've ever made in your life and you'll turn out to be the next sort of um, uh, Tom Curry or, or Johnny Wilkinson. Um, but actually, you're not taking that opportunity. So, so, so will that happen? Who knows? But just mm-hmm. have a look at it. Don't just shut it down before you've even thought about it. Yeah. And it's, it's life's dirty little secret that nothing really ever goes according to plan. So oh, yeah. <laughs> even if you have a plan, it's probably not going to go that way. Oh, so, yeah, opportunity. Exactly. Yeah. And actually, when life throws you a curveball, either accept it or dodge out of the way. Yes. So, so, so you always have a choice. No matter what, you've always got a choice. And it's up to you on how you deal with it. I think that's good life lessons, not just for you know, conservation-minded people and environmentalists, but just for life in general, yeah. definitely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so um, I feel like that sort of look into the future and, and those lovely words from you there, encouraging encouraging words, is a good time um, to wrap up. Um, but, of course, I have two final questions that I am going to ask you, which I ask everybody. Um, and the first one of those is, what animal adaptation would you have and why? Oh, that's always a hard one because yeah. <laughs> it, it really is. I mean, it's, it's like asking what would you rather be, an eagle or a dolphin? Mm-hmm. Both, both are amazing creatures. Both own the, the, the environments they live in. Uh, but, oh, it's really tough. Um, <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I, think, I think it would be amazing to fly. I, I really, really do. And don't get me wrong, I'd love to fly in the water as well. But I think the, the ability to fly, the number of, t- okay, I know it sounds a bit selfish, but the number of times I've been stuck in a traffic jam and I've gone, you know what, I just want to get out of my car and fly to where I want to be, go straight there. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I, think, I think I'm think i going to have to, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go for flights. The, the, the power of flight, I think, would be my uh, my animal adaption that I'd, I'd take on, I think. Yeah, that's a very, very popular choice for obvious reasons, of course. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, and the second one, which also stumps people and is, seems seems to be proving to be quite a difficult question as well, is um, who would play you in a movie of your life? That's really tough. Can I play myself? Am I allowed to do that? You can. There's no rules. 
yeah, nobody's um, nobody's chosen that option. I mean, it's really hard because again, you're sort of you're picking people on. I mean, in the nicest way, you're probably picking people on their looks. Most oh, of yeah. time, whether, whether or not you're like, oh, you know, what? I'm 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 Zac Efron or I'm uh, yeah. uh, I'm Thor. You know what I mean? So it's it's always a tough one. Um, I mean, I think if I go off what people have done in films, I think I'd probably choose. Uh, I think it was Matt Damon that was in the film We Bought a Zoo. Yes. Yeah. Um, so if I'm going off what people have done in, in films, it will be between him and Robert Downey Jr. for Doctor Doolittle. Nice. Um, but I, it, it, it's a tough one because, uh, yeah. But if I go off, off what they've done in films, those two. Fab, fab. Good, good answers. I like the thought process. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I, that about sort of wraps up um, my questions for you today. Um, thank you so, so much for taking the time to, to talk to me and, and appear on my little podcast. Um, and for, for anyone listening, um, you can follow Adam's journey and wonderful photography on his Instagram page, which is at Adam underscore talks wild, which I will put in the show notes as well for people to find. Um, is, uh, it, would you like to sort of plug any other places that people can find you and, and follow you? Here's your I mean, opportunity. To... You can also find me on, on, on Twitter and Facebook, both the same Adam, Adam, well, Facebook's Adam underscore talks wild. Twitter's just Adam talks wild. Um, yeah, I, I think that's about it from me. Um, I, I'm not, I, I, I'm, I'm, I love the good uh, shameless plug, but I think you've, you've sort of beaten me to it, really. So, uh, no, thank you very much for having me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, and as I say, I'll put all those links in the show notes for people to be able to find you and then follow your future journeys um, in South Africa come this summer, which is amazing. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yeah. Right. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. You're wonderful to talk to you thank you so much for telling us all those stories um of, of your journey so far no thank you for having me and I'm, I'm more than happy to share more in the future so uh it was, it was a great great talk thank you very much awesome i'll catch up with you soon cheers thank you very much take care And that's the end of episode nine. Thank you very, very much for coming back to join me. I hope everyone's okay in these lockdown strange times. Stay safe and keep smiling. Um, also, just wanted to explain a little bit. I didn't know if it was obvious or not, um, but in episodes, um, I usually try and have a bit of a link between the interviewee and the species in the spotlight, however tenuous that may be. Um, so for example, first episode, Jesse Panizzolo loves primates, so it was the mountain gorilla. Last week's episode, Tristan's Australian, so it was an Australian species. Um, previous interviews where I've had with marine-based individuals, um, they've been marine species. So yeah, just a very tenuous link. Um, but I felt like this time, it's really, really not obvious, <laughs> unless you're inside my brain. Um, so the link there was Adam's dissertation was on five ungulate species. Um, so I decided to pick an ungulate to talk about. <laughs> uh, so as I said, very tenuous link. Um, and also, um, Chevalsky's horses... Um, so Shavalsky's horse um, captive population does exist at Marwell Zoo as well. Um, so there's your little link for you. <laughs> um, just in case in case you didn't you didn't realize and it's nice to just make these things a bit more obvious um so thanks for listening um if you got this far well done um 
yeah, the sound wasn't amazing for this episode, um, but that's just due to um, Wi-Fi issues um, of people in very rural areas with not amazing connections. Um, I'd love to do these interviews in person, but obviously not possible at the moment. <laughs> um, but thanks for sticking with it. Um, and yeah, my editing skills are slowly getting there with stitching bits together and stuff like that. So that's always cool as well. Learning every day's a school day. Um, yeah, so just thanks very much um, for for tuning in once again. Um, as always, you can find me on Instagram at Turn On The Light Pod. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Saving Species. And if for any reason you would like to email me, um, it's Turn On The Light Pod at gmail.com. As always, they will be included, those links will be included in the show notes, um, along with Adam's Instagram and his Twitter handles and Facebook as well. Um, so thanks everyone. Stay safe, stay positive, stay smiling. Uh, love you lots. See you in a couple of weeks. Goodbye. And remember that hope can be found even in the darkest of times if only one remembers to turn on the light.